It would be great if they did have a career path in mind. Often what I find is, particularly for parents who aren't also game players, is they have a very simple goal. They want to turn their game-consuming child into someone who actually contributes to the game community. It's this usual sort of, my kid loves playing. How can I turn that into a job? My usual response is, well, there are a lot of different jobs. I think you need to start to figure out what they're good at, what they're excited about, what they want to do. Uh, and it's also important to recognize that those those roles change. So uh, I have students who started in localization and they were literally translating Nintendo games into Japanese and they move into game design or people who start in sound design and move into game development. Uh, having that, I think, particularly in this generation, having that flexibility affords you longevity. My name is Dr. Mark Williams. Welcome to my masterclass. I have a PhD in education from West Virginia University. I have a master's in sport management and an MBA from the University of Massachusetts. I even have an undergraduate degree in sociology from William Patterson University. And currently, I'm the global scholar practitioner at HBCU, Florida Memorial University. But I also work for three of the largest sports brands in the world, Reebok, Champ Sports, and Foot Action. But I can't go anywhere without my Jordan 1s. Join me and my guests as we explore their rise to the top through adversity and challenges, it's time to help you find a hero in you. Welcome to my masterclass. Welcome again to another episode of Dr. Mark's Masterclass Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Mark Williams, and I'm also partnered here, and this is powered by Innovation Media Enterprises with my two good friends, Aaron and Sia, that hold it down there. Producers extraordinaire. Thank you so much for all that you do. Also to my man, AJ, on the wheels of steel. Uh, yes, holding it down for us, making us sound so good here. And we got to give a shout out to our our wonderful, uh, the the RZA. Those of you who follow Wu-Tang Clan and music, uh, that's the head, okay? Uh, Jacob Miles, he's our fearless leader that started this amazing, amazing opportunity and this amazing platform here as the number one esports podcast network in the world. And people are like, well, Mark, is, is that a possibility? Do we, is that really the case? Uh, I'm claiming it because no one else is claiming it. So I'm claiming it and I'm saying it and that's it. <laughs> so today is a very special day. As you know, I would say this is education day. As you see, I'm sporting my West Virginia University gear. Uh, this is where I went and got my PhD, my friends. So I'm representing it. I'm not just wearing it just to wear it, um, but I'm wearing it because I want to say thank you to West Virginia University for providing me Four great years of education, and many of you know I have my doctorate in education, but my doctorate is focusing on curriculum. So what do I do? I help universities write curriculum. Yes. Did I plan on doing that? No, I did not. It's in curriculum, and it's also in leadership. So I had no idea that my background in music, sports, fashion, film, education, video games was going to pay off like this in education. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be at Florida Memorial University, uh, an HBCU in South Florida, and proud to be their first global scholar practitioner. And I'm starting a an esports program that is focused and fueled around the STEM area. It's man, and I and the great thing is that um, I have a person uh, that is dynamic, another dynamic educator that is going to speak to us today. And actually, he's a neighbor of mine, uh, not my physical neighbor, but he's in. Uh, Coral Gables and uh, some people might say Miami. Uh, he's at the University of Miami because that's where Coral Gables is. But there are some people that still say they're in Miami. At the end of the day, 
he's my South Florida brother that I am my brother from another mother. And interestingly enough, he came from another school called Miami University in Ohio. And um, I want to introduce you to him because I think that when we're talking about uh, this $200 billion industry called uh, the video game industry, uh, esports represents about 6 to 7%. That's a sliver. And right now, the sexy word, the sexy term in education and just in our society is esports, esports, esports. So everyone wants to start an esports program. Uh, there's over 3,000 schools out there that have esports in terms of games at their school, but there's only 500 schools in the country that actually have varsity esports where people are getting academics, athletic scholarships to play. But we also know that you don't go to school to play video games. You go to school to get an education. Okay. And that's where this gentleman comes in at because there's about 80, 80 to 81 schools right now that actually offer some form of academic curriculum or major or concentration uh, of, of esports and video games. And uh, we're, we're going to talk about that. And this next person that I'm going to bring and introduce to you is someone who is um, – in the video game world, he is very well known, but in academia and some areas in academia and even pop culture, unheralded. There's so many unheralded uh, professors and administrators and dynamic people out there that you or your children may not know of, but you need to know, especially if you're thinking about going to college or if you're in high school and you're in middle school, you need to start thinking about your future. If your son or daughter is interested in careers and video games and it, video games, you know, it encompasses so many different layers. It's not just uh, shooter games and, and sports games and, and, uh, and fighter games. There's so many nuances. There's AR, there's VR, there's game design, there's, there's marketing, there's, there's entrepreneurship. I mean, there's so many different entities in it, but this person, his name is Lindsey Grace. I can't make that up. That's his name. Lindsey Grace. Yes. It sounds like a Hollywood name. It sounds like a TV show, maybe not Will and Grace, but Lindsey Grace is his name, and he has this profound name. And when you see his uh, screen, you're going to see the green screen behind him. He's going to be like, Lindsey Grace, look at him. Yes, that's a professor. Yes, it's a professor. And he is dynamic. And why is he so dynamic? Yeah, Lindsey, he's the, he's a night chair of interactive media and an associate professor at University of Miami School of Communication. He's a vice president for the Higher Education Video Game Alliance. And in 2019, he was a recipient of the Games for Change Vanguard Award. He has a book called Do Things with Game, Social Media Impact Through Design, and his well-received uh, guide to game design. Uh, his work has received numerous awards and recognition from the games and uh, video game industry um, and for the Games for Change Festival, uh, the Digital Diversity Network, the Association of Computing Machinery's Digital Arts Community, Black Enterprise, and many others. He co-authored or co-authored more than 50 papers articles and book chapters on games since 2009. Uh, so that's over 12 years he's been writing about it and being produced, producing so many different entities around the video game industry. Uh, his creative work has been seen in selective showcases internationally, including New York, Paris, Singapore, Chicago, Vancouver, Istanbul, and others. Lindsay curated or uh, co-curated uh, Blank Arcade, Smithsonian American Arts Museum, uh, Sam Arcade, and the Games of Change, Civic and Social Impact, and others, which means he's the real deal. OK, all of that to say this man is the real deal. I am honored and privileged to call this man friend. He and I have not met in person yet, even though he's about 10 minutes down the road from me. I say not 10 minutes, maybe 30 minutes down the road from me. And he was introduced to me by one of our dear friends that just we just had um, that we just interviewed. Um, you know, many, you know, many of you will hear that interview with uh, some of my dear friends at the University 
of Miami University uh, in Ohio, Dr. Phil Alexander and Dr. Glenn Platt, uh, as you know, uh, two of the leading educators in the world. They introduced me to this brother, and I'm honored and proud to call him friend and also future colleague. And so I just want to welcome you to the, the show, Lindsay. How are you feeling, man? I'm feeling great. Thanks for having me. Yes. See, what do you think of that introduction? You're like, oh, that's a lot. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> yes. So tell us about your position at, uh, at at the University of Miami, because a lot of times you hear titles and sometimes people get lost in titles and words. Tell us about what you what you do on a daily basis. Sure, sure. So my role as the night chair in interactive media is largely to find uh, disparate spaces that could be improved through uh, largely game design. So that might be looking at journalism and trying to improve how people understand the world around them through games. It might be applying what we call social impact games or persuasive play games. These are games designed to change people's interest, activities, or opinions. Uh, it really varies. Largely, my responsibility is to try and see what's wrong with the world and see if games can help fix it. Okay. Okay, so tell us about your 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 appetite for video games because you you went to Northwestern University, um, you got the MFA at University of Chicago, um, you got the BA in English from Northwestern. So you, obviously, you, there's a level of uh, I guess like um, like Dr. Phil, he he's he's really big on writing. Uh, so did you think that you were going to go the writing route when you were an undergrad? Um, and how did you wind up morphing into getting into the video game industry? I know you have a, a master's in computer science and electronic visualization from University of Chicago, but did that is that where it all began? Uh, that's a great question. And often when I talk to particularly new students, there's th this question arises. The truth is I started making games when I was about 10 years old. It was sort mm. of a hobby. I was reading magazines, transcribing code, and I was really excited about making games, partly because I couldn't afford buying them, but I could, you know, I had plenty of time, so I had plenty of time to make them. So I started there and then took kind of a hiatus until after my undergrad. And most of my career uh, to this point has been fairly circuitous. I think sometimes, particularly as people are trying to figure out where they're going to go in life, they think there's a clear and direct path. And I meet a lot of people in game design with that same experience. It's not a clear and direct path. It's about seeing opportunity and also about responding to the world as it changes. So I worked as a um, mutual fund uh, database administrator at one point. I worked in an industrial supply company. I worked at a variety of jobs that seemingly had nothing to do with, with games, but ultimately each piece of that experience helped me become the kind of game designer I am now. I'm combining my experience as a, a software architect with the experience of getting an undergraduate in English and really understanding narrative uh, and analysis. So ultimately, uh, you know, I, I wish I could tell you it was clear that there's a point in my life where I said, aha, this is when I really started to become a game designer. But ultimately, it's a, it's a product of a bunch of um, kind of responses to environment. My first faculty position was actually uh, in interactive media and web design. And uh, when I explained all the things that I was doing in games, they'd asked me to teach a course in narrative. And after that, I just I kind of ran with it, uh, developed more of my understanding of practice and then started designing my own games. Uh, this is this is pretty funny <laughs> because <laughs> you, you just kind of like skimmed over this. Like, yeah, I started designing games and reading magazines at 10. Okay. <laughs> how did that happen? I mean, what, what did your parents do for a living? How did, did they, how did they encourage you? What, how, I mean, just 10 year olds just don't want to go around making games. Uh, so tell us about your background. Where did you grow up at? And uh, how did your parents, did they, obviously they encourage you to be the best version of yourself, but what was it like growing up? What were your parents like? And where did you grow up at? 
So it's really kind of a crazy story in itself. So my parents were very young. They had me at 18. They actually ended up going to college by the time they started going to college around my six years old or so. So my parents were kind of busy trying to hold down a job and go to college. Uh, And I had a lot of time. I'm an only child, so I had a lot of time and energy. Uh, At that same time, I uh, developed a kind of, um, I developed a disease that had me in the hospital a lot. Mm. And so while I was in the hospital, I got exposed to video games. They had a little section. It was literally like three arcade games. And they literally were at, we were allowed as as, um, patients that if we took our blood draws, if we behaved well, we could go play. And so I played and my mind was blown. I was absolutely hooked. Uh, And then I saw movies like War Games in the 80s and thought, oh my gosh, computers are the future. I want to make these things. I was also really excited about robotics. I think I was just an excitable kid. What games were, what what game, what game was it that you, the three games that you saw? Uh, I always forget the title, but the the short version is it was a it was a racing sim, a car racing sim, uh, early '80s, probably about 1982, and it was really just a maze game uh, where you had to compete and take the right turn at the right time. Mm. But it just the idea of interacting with a computer just so excited me that um, when I went back to uh, to middle school or not middle school to you know sort of I think it was about second grade at this point. The short version is I got very, very lucky. And I always emphasize to to anyone who sort of um, had some opportunities and really taken the opportunities. Part of it is about getting access to those opportunities. Uh, The basically IBM had donated computers to my uh, school in a poor community. And that school had a computer lab. And so we got to play a game called Load Runner. Absolutely excited me after I'd played some stuff in the hospital. And I just, I wanted more and more and more. And I mentioned that IBM did it because if I fast forward more than 15 years later, as a professor at Miami of Ohio, I became the Armstrong professor of um, media arts. And that Armstrong is uh, named after the former CEO of IBM, Hmm. who actually endowed funds at Miami of Ohio to do this kind of research. And one of his points of pride was providing Boston area schools like mine with computers free of charge in order to enhance their education. So sort of, I I love that story as a way of illustrating how it comes full circle. So 20 years later, he's got a faculty member that he helped sort of develop into the person they are today by simply donating computers to a, you know, sort of at-risk community. Mm, Wow. So, so let's, so let's tell people a little bit about when people talk about game design, people think that you're just designing games. There's different types. There's uh, lead designers, level designers, content designers, game writers, system designers, technical designers. Can you kind of, if you were talking to a parent right now and sure. their child is interested in something similar to you as far as designing a game, now that when you were growing up, you didn't have uh, kind of a, a guide about what, how that's going to happen. But now that you're someone who has a background in it and someone who teaches this, what would you be telling parents and young people in terms of the kind of career opportunities they could they can maybe enjoy or look forward to when it comes to game design? If anyone ever talks to me about sort of what they want to do in games, the first thing I tell them to do is have an open mind. Uh, I couldn't have told someone a decade ago, you know what you should do is become a, an esports caster because you've got the personality for it. What I always emphasize is that you've got to be responsive. 
And that's why often I describe the best kinds of games educations as not ones that give you an extremely narrow set of experiences that'll make you the perfect Maya animator or make you the perfect level designer, but instead the ones that give you a broad education that let you seize opportunity so that you have enough understanding that when you see an opportunity, you can say, you know what, I think I could learn a little more premiere and become the editor on a video game show, or I think I'm going to become a Twitch streamer, or I think I'm going to run a collection of Twitch streamers. All of those things, the people who leave these spaces are often just really good at reading the environment and then responding to it appropriately. Hmm. What do you, when you meet parents now and kids now, what are some of the, the, the career paths that they're interested in, or do they even have uh, a career path um, in mind? It, it would be great if they did have a career path in mind. Often what I find is particularly for parents who aren't also game players is they have a very simple goal. They want to turn their game consuming child into someone who actually contributes to the game community. It's this usual sort of, my kid loves playing. How can I turn that into a job? My usual response is, well, there are a lot of different jobs. I think you need to start to figure out what they're good at, what they're excited about, what they want to do. Uh, and it's also important to recognize that those, those roles change. So uh, I have students who started in localization and they were literally translating Nintendo games into Japanese and they move into game design or people who start in sound design and move into game development. Uh, having that, I think, particularly in this generation, having that flexibility affords you longevity in the industry. Mm -hmm. So tell me about the program at, um, at University of Miami. If a student is coming to your school and a parent is learning about your program, what is the, what is the, um, the nucleus of your program? And what are some of the things that, uh, what do you think of the things that you hang your hat on in terms of the things that you do very well in your program? Yeah, so I actually think we do the, um, so for example, we have our, our BA and our BA does a really good job of giving people a broad range understanding of the world of games and the larger world of interactive media. So we have students who go on to do UX design, user experience design, um, as well as interface. And that's a good example of how uh, being flexible works well. So a little bit like Hollywood, some people say they want to be a part of Hollywood and everyone first thinks, oh, I want to be on stage. Mm. But people who have long-term careers in Hollywood sometimes recognize that actually I want to be the audio producer. I want to be the executive producer. And what we do is prep students in that way. So they understand the wide range of jobs because there are millions of people trying to be the next star and there may only be 20 people trying to be the next executive producer mm -hmm. on a um, on a great video game broadcast, for example. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think that's one of our strengths. And the other strength is uh, an engagement with community. We do a lot of these, uh, what we call sort of social impact projects or games for good, interactive media for good. And I think that's one of the other things that distinguishes us from the average program. One of the things that, um, that is, that is always, um, not a concern, but um, I'm curious about a lot. And we had this conversation with, uh, with uh, Phil um, uh, over at, um, at uh, in Miami of Ohio is the DNI. Uh, you, someone being of color that is in this space and educating um, the world about what you're doing. Uh, how, what are some of the ways that we can uh, really uh, create pathways for students in color and ethnic minorities and women in this space that is not largely dominated by people of color? Sure. So I've actually had a history of doing this a couple of different ways. So for years, uh, about three years, I uh, helped run a, an event 
that was largely focused on increasing diversity and inclusion uh, in DC. We basically ran a, a conference for about 100 people and just talked about what we can do as an industry in order to improve that. Uh, and we engaged a variety of people that are sort of high profile in the space. The other is that I think, especially in game design and game development, uh, one of the key markers of success is your portfolio, how much you've done. And while I don't know that I would always argue that the games industry is a meritocracy, I don't think it's always just how well you do. I do think there's some notion of who you know. I, I do think it's important to provide people those opportunities, which is why, for example, I've spent so many years working with a global game jam and running game jams because they're low cost, low barrier to entry opportunities to get experience making games. And the third one is actually about visibility. So uh, as an example, and not to sort of uh, mention my own projects, but uh, as an example, the uh, Black Game Makers book that I'm working on right now, uh, where I've got a call out to all people who uh, are the African diaspora to articulate the games they've made, their experiences, mm. to talk about any research they've done. Uh, and then I collect that. And thanks to ETC Press out of Carnegie Mellon, we're going to publish an open access version of this book, as well as a traditional print version that I think should function as a resource both for educators who are trying to say, well, I'd like to include more Black games in my curriculum, but also for uh, those who are hoping to become game designers, developers, participate in esports in the future by giving them uh, a kind of roadmap and set of examples of other people uh, of diverse backgrounds doing this kind of work. From what you've seen in your experience, what um, out of all the, I guess, different areas of, of video games, where do you see the biggest upside for um, not only people of color, but just in general, in terms of the job opportunities out there? Where do you see um, as far as the, the, the future for video games? Where, where do you think the, that, that area lies and what, where, where are some of the jobs that may develop or that's not even developed yet? What, what areas sure. do you think are, most, are the most prominent? So I think a couple are really uh, quite obvious. And I, you know, about 10 years ago, I was a huge proponent of independent games. And you can see it in the, in the resources that I'm collecting for the book that a number of people have said, I couldn't find a space for myself for the kinds of games I wanted to make, so I made my own. Hmm. The fact that game production has reduced in cost and the barriers to entry are relatively low in comparison to 15, 20 years ago when you really only had consoles or PC downloads. Uh, I think that's one of the opportunities that's going to persist for the next 10 years. I think if you can make something great, then it, if it if it has the right momentum behind it, it can make your career. Uh, I also think that there's a lot of a lot of burgeoning opportunity in spaces like esports broadcasting. Uh, I think that not everyone can be an esports athlete, and a lot of the first round initiatives have focused on the focus on the. Uh, they focused on the actual athletes. Mm -hmm. And I think the challenge there is that there's so much more uh, accoutrement, so much more stuff around an esports broadcast and uh, general game spectating that needs to be fleshed out, that needs much more substantial labor forces behind it. And so I think that's the next, uh, I think the low hanging fruit for someone who says, I want to be involved in games, but I, I don't know how. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I noticed um too uh that you um you know the the vice president of the for higher education video game alliance. What what exactly is that and what does it do? what how how does that function in education? Sure. 
So I described the uh, HEVGA or the Higher Education Video Games Alliance as essentially an advocacy group aiming to improve the quality of education worldwide in games. Mm -hmm. And so it's everything from running scholarship programs uh, and supporting the Electronic Software Association and other organizations that are trying to help people uh, gain access to a better education in games, but also to help uh, teachers, instructors at all levels um, including uh, post-secondary, so college and graduate level, figure out how to do their job better and find the resources, connect them with the individuals that really support the, uh, the quality education that we think games deserves. And, and I noticed you were on the board for the Digital Games Research Association. How many, associ what, what, I mean, how many associations are out there around this, um, not only in education, but because I, I would have, if I had not, really taking a step to look at the video game industry outside of just playing the game and looking at it from an academic perspective and a research perspective. I, I'm just blown away every day by learning about so many researchers that are out there um, that, um, that are writing about video games that are talking about misogyny in games that are talking about advocacy in games. I mean, it's, it, the list goes on and on. What are, what are some of the organizations out there that you look at, that you respect, that you think is doing good work around this? And also to educate our audience about if they, if the, if the parents out there and they, or, or students out there, and they want to learn more about this industry and, and research and people and places and things that are out there, what are some of the resources out there that they can look at outside of the academic community? Sure. So absolutely, I think one of the best ways to describe what you're seeing is there's this, been this trajectory change. I'd say it started about 15 years ago where there weren't a lot of uh, games education that was delivering something other than preparation for industry. And that has shifted. So now we have uh, a space generally known as game studies where people are analyzing games, looking at their social value, looking at their cultural value, looking at the things that they uh, offer to communities. And for that kind of work, I absolutely love in the educational and research space, uh, the Digital Games Research Association, uh, DIGRA. Uh, I think that there are older organizations like the IGDA, uh, the International Game Developers Association, which has been going on strong for a long time, that do a really good job of connecting future game designers and developers with the current industry and supporting the current industry by looking at opportunities to make the experience of being in games uh, more enjoyable. And they have a great sense of community. They have local IGDA chapters. So I often encourage people who are interested in engaging in the, the, the discipline and, or engaging in the games industry to try and see what they can do with their IGDA local chapter. Beyond that, there are so many great resources now uh, that I, it, I'm almost struggling not to give you this litany. But uh, off the top of my head, uh, Informa, who uh, runs the Game Developers uh, Conference, the GDC, manages a variety of websites like Gama Sutra and Game Career Guide that have been resources for almost 20 years at this point, as well as attending the variety of conferences. And sometimes people are surprised to realize how close some of those conferences are. So on the East Coast, you have things like the East Coast Games Conference, which I find to be a very accessible sort of GDC light, a small model of the larger GDC, which is you know, 25,000 people and can be overwhelming if you don't know where to go. But even within GDC, they make subsets. So there's a Friday for people who are interested in getting in that's part of a game, uh, I think it's called a game career seminar. And it's really just about helping people get an introduction to the world of games. 
So there's a lot of resources right now. And I think that's that's for the best, especially when you consider the opportunities uh, that it provides for increasing diversity, equity, and inclusion. What would you say to a parent or even a young person that, that really wants to get a leg up before they go to college or even if they're in middle school and high school, what, what kind of resources should they look for? And when they're looking at um, learning about schools, first of all, about that, that are, that have uh, game design or, or video games in general, but also the conferences that, that they can go to that is accessible and it's easy to navigate through so that they can have a better perspective and a leg up. Sure. So the first thing I would recommend is actually just getting yourself oriented by checking all the online resources. So for example, the GDC offers something called the GDC Vault, and they put a number of these videos on YouTube. So if you want to get a sense for the intensity of the kinds of lectures that occur at GDC, it's a great, easy access resource. Likewise, you'll find that a number of faculty, uh, including myself, maintain YouTube uh, channels that articulate some of the core things that we either teach in class or uh, that articulate our research, and all of that content is free and highly accessible. Likewise, I think it's important to engage with individual members and to find your way. So when I say individual members, I mean uh, people who are part of the IGDA's local chapter or who are offering education within your community. HEBCA calculates more than 500 colleges and universities that are delivering this type of education. And I am sure that there are a number of uh, schools at the sort of K through 12 section that have also been doing this kind of work and connecting with them through things like camps uh, and online tutorials really do help you get a sense for how it is to do this kind of work. Now, I'm a game designer with a sort of development background, so I often recommend that people just go out and make something. So uh, Game Salad's a great resource, uh, Game Maker. These are really simple tools, uh, Scratch, Twine, that will let you experience uh, a subset of the game-making experience I think would really be useful to people. I also think it's important to recognize that for people who are, say, interested in esports, uh, that again, there are ways for you to flirt with the real world experience by recording at home on your computer or looking up tutorials or just trying to engage with the material. I mean, I, I think it kind of comes back to the way that I came into this industry, which is literally by teaching myself. I would have loved the shortcut of someone else teaching me because it would have gotten me further faster. But I think that there's something to be said and something that's well-respected in the industry when someone takes the initiative and engages on their own. So right now, as a, as a person of color, um, what would you recommend to a person of color or a young black male, a young black female that is interested in the video game industry? What, what, what would you recommend as far as schools Universities, obviously, you 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 know, in your school, you would mention, recommend your school, obviously. But what what other schools would you recommend in terms of because there's different nuances. There's every every school has a different, um, I guess, um, I guess the way that they go about communicating uh, to their students. Some schools have a full blown esports program. Some schools have a game design program. Some schools are known for AR VR. Uh, how, how would you direct uh, a family, especially a person of color, if they said, hey, I'm interested in this, what types of schools would you recommend to them? Um, because obviously you, there's, there's many of them out there, including HBCUs. There are now a few HBCUs that are now offering it. But what, what's, what, what are some of the schools that you look at and you say, hey, those are, those are some of the leaders in this area? 
Sure. So unfortunately, unlike uh, game design and game development programs that are ranked annually by the Princeton Review, and you could use the shorthand looking at the top 20, although the ranks can be misleading as there are some really great schools that are on those ranks and some schools that just game the system. I think that one of the most important things, and I would tell this across any interest in any college institution, is to get a sense for the character. And that character can actually shift generally within about a five-year uh, increment. So, for example, uh, some schools are really interested in large volumes of students. And if you're the kind of student who needs a lot of individual care and attention, I'd strongly suggest that you avoid that kind of institution. Uh, some of the bigger programs have this, this character. Others are really already uh, firmly in the esports environment, not just giving it sort of lip service. Uh, so, for example, University of Utah has got a strong esports team. Uh, they've got some faculty that I'm friends with who do some really good work in esports, both on the research side and on the industry side. So, I, I think that that's a you know that's a strong example of an institution that I think covers all of it. But it's also a bigger program of 200 plus undergrads. So if you want to be in a program with 20 undergrads, there are a variety of small liberal arts colleges, say, in the Northeast, that have that opportunity and do have some engagement with esports. There's always a plus and minus. Ultimately, there are also finances. And then for people who uh, really do need a, a diverse environment, there are some uh, advantages and disadvantages to specific locations. So some of the more urban campuses tend to attract a wider variety of um, students. Uh, from all over the world. Uh, and then some of the others are a little more homogenous, but you also have to understand your tolerance uh, for that. Doesn't mm -hmm. an homogenous institution doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a very uncomfortable situation, but if you're looking for support groups and want to be amongst people who look like you, share the same culture as you, then uh, you really should be looking at, at that as well. And it's always a balance, right? So in some cases, this is a strong argument for going to an HBCU and having that community. Uh, and in other cases, it may be that you're more concerned about making sure that you break in as an undergrad into the esports world and you want to be at an institution that already has three major teams and uh, scholarships in esports. Mm -hmm. So it really is a very personal decision. But um, I think I would start by looking very carefully beyond the marketing for any institution and look at the character uh, that the individual students can share with you that meeting with faculty can offer. So, and as we talked, you and I, um, I've talked to your chair, uh, Dr. Kim, and, and we, we talk about collaboration. How important is collaboration in academics right now when it comes to the video game industry? Certainly. So collaboration amongst academics is essential. Uh, that's really how we get most of our work done. On the other side, the relationship with industry is always fluctuating. So there are faculty researchers uh, who have done a really good job engaging in industry. But one of the challenges is that industry is often concerned about preserving its intellectual property. Mm -hmm. And so to let a faculty member in, particularly those faculty members who are very much interested in exposing the intellectual property or explaining how an organization works for the general good of uh, the populace, it sometimes can be antithetical. It can work contrary to a, an, an industry uh, institution's own goals. So if you make profit from having a secret sauce, the last thing you want to do is invite a highly published researcher in to learn about your secret sauce because we are going to share it because we want everyone to prosper. <laughs> wow, that's funny. I, I'm thinking, too, if you had a crystal ball, and you were to predict uh, where we're going with 
uh, esports because people keep talking about this buzzword esports, and I keep telling people it's only six percent, seven percent of the video game industry. Um, where do you see um, in academia? What do you see um, as the biggest, you know, um, opportunity? Uh, or do you see the future in uh, video games in terms of academia? Where do you see, what do you think the biggest upside is from what you sure. see from, from your lens? Sure. So, you know, I've been teaching an esports class for the last two years. I created it when I arrived here at the University of Miami. And one of the trends I see that I, I think a lot of people have become savvy to is that for institutions that don't have the kinds of finances to say have a University of Miami level football team, or I used to work at American University, an American University level basketball team. What happens is that esports is a is a cheaper opportunity to get national recognition in a digital space. Mm. So it says for some institutions, we are uh, we are tech savvy. We have status. We have success, and so and we're part of the future. We're future forward, and so I think that one of the things you're going to see is a is a, a proliferation of some version of esports teams mm-hmm. across institutions. I think it's also because the students want it. And having been one of the sort of early generation game design faculty, I started teaching game design back in 2003. Uh, one of the other things that we saw was the reason there were so many game design programs created between 2003 and 2009 was because people wanted it. Students came to school and said, I need this. I don't know why we're not learning this. And deans respond, provosts respond, presidents respond. So I think that that proliferation is also going to be a product of how many students come to these institutions and say, why don't we have an esports team? To which Mm. an appropriate college goes, you're right, we should. So I think those are the two near field trends that I would expect. Okay. Yeah, I want to remind everyone, if you're just listening to the, to this podcast and watching this podcast, wherever you are, uh, you're listening to Dr. Mark's Masterclass Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Williams, uh, Innovate Powered by Innovation Media Enterprises with Aaron and Sia, my partners here in crime. Uh, thank you so much for all your support. And uh, also, AGR, great engineer on the wheels of steel is always making us sound so good. And we're listening to Lindsey Grace, who's the night chair in interactive media at the University of Miami, having this really fascinating conversation about esports, talking about um, game design, talking about video games, talking about academia, talking about parents and young people finding creative sources to to communicate and learn about the ecosystem. And um, it's just been a fascinating conversation. We're going to definitely have to have you come back on because we, you and I are talking about collaboration, uh, coming together, trying to find things that work for both brands, uh, both universities, but also really creating a pathway for uh, students really to have a, a more diverse and more robust uh, education around this space. Uh, how excited are you about, because um, I'm not sure if you've worked with HBCs before, but how excited are you about um, educating our students about um, you know the things that you've done in your career? Because our students, it doesn't matter if they're white or black. We, we think people in general need to be exposed to a Lindsey Grace because you are definitely one of the um, premier educators in the world when it comes to this. So uh, how excited are you about uh, being exposed and being able to educate uh, some of our students at HBCUs? Absolutely. I mean, my whole goal, my whole thing, if you will, is I'm just trying to help everybody get where they want to go. So if I can help you get there, let me do it. Mm -hmm. 
We love that. We love that. So tell us about what, what is your, what is, what is the, what is the, um, what are some of the things that uh, you're excited about uh, at the, at the university of Miami in terms of things that we don't know yet, but something that, that, that you can share with us that's, that's coming up the pike uh, that, that you can educate us about or even use as a recruiting tool to get more young people to think about applying to your university. Certainly. I think a couple of things come to mind immediately. One is almost old news at this point, but we were the first, are the first academic partner uh, with, uh, wow, let me try that again. So we are the first academic partner with Magic Leap. And so mm. our relationship in the space of mixed reality is probably unparalleled distinctly on the East Coast. We have a lot of projects that branch everything from medical science to um, fundamentals of arts and uh, a variety of other spaces that I think are really exciting. It's the kind of institution where you're going to say, oh, wait, so that first one happened there mm. and it's just going to keep happening. I think that's one of the, the points of pride for the institution. I also think that this particular area, so uh, I think one of the things I'm excited about is being in South Florida, there's a, a clear sense of a new trajectory, a kind of rebirth. A lot of people have told me, I, I just moved down here about two or three years ago, that I'm coming at just the right time. Mm -hmm. And you can see the national conversation around moving more tech here, moving more finance down here. So it kind of feels like uh, you know, landing in San Francisco right at the right time. And there's this potential for this really, really exciting gold rush of new ideas, of new research, of new practices, of, of birthing new areas. We've got esports companies that come down here and say, oh no, we, are, we, we need to be based in Fort Lauderdale. We need to be based in Miami. And I think those are all really good signs. It feels like a good time to be here. And I just got here in July. So um, are you telling me that I came at the great time too? So am I? Yes. Oh, good. That, that's good to hear. So Florida Memorial, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> uh, you heard it first here from Lindsey Grace. This is a great time. And I, I, I truly believe that. I tell people all the time, I, sh I we film and uh, record um, my show um, out, out of Dallas. And Dallas and Frisco is like the Silicon Valley right now of, of this whole esports. And then you have LA, obviously. You have Atlanta. You have uh, cities like Orlando, uh, Raleigh, um, but, but 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 bigger, larger cities like Houston, um, even um, Tampa uh, are not they're not there yet. And and even though we're in in Miami, the ecosystem is is starting to bubble up. You can feel it. And yeah. and that one of the reasons why I came to Miami, I tell people all the time. I said, you know, it, to be able to be in a an environment where you see. Um, you can kind of foreshadow what's about to happen, uh, similar to what you talked about in San Francisco with Silicon Valley. Um, most of those tech companies at the time, they, they may have saw it, they may not have saw it, but the ones that did see it, they were visionaries. They saw it. And if you've been in this space and immersed in this space for a while, you kind of look at where the trends are. And I, I really think, um, you know, no pun intended to Will Smith's Miami song, but I think that when it comes to this space of it, you already have the entertainment here. You have the sports here. This this Miami is the next big city. I think if it, if it, if it, if it positions itself correctly, which I think we are. Um, and we look at the, the education uh, institutions that are down here and we start collaborating in that space and the tech companies are slowly, but surely moving down there. I think uh, Miami is going to be the next big city uh, that's going to explode. Um, and I, I feel it. That's why I'm here and I'm happy and honored uh, to have met you. Uh, virtually uh, again and again, but we have got to get together soon, my man, because we're, we're, we're not that far apart from each other. Right, right. <laughs> I agree.
Yes. And I think that's going to happen very soon because Kim and I had a very, very uh, interesting conversation the other day. He's very excited about the potential uh, partnership uh, and, and just uh, getting to know each other. But I think what both institutions um, represent is, is something unique and different. But I think that there's a learning curve and a lot of uh, a lot of excitement uh, in the air. And, and, and again, do you um, if someone wants to keep in contact, get in contact with you, uh, Lindsay, how would they do that? And um, and what is uh, your your turnaround time? Because a lot of people think, oh, that person's busy. Uh, I can't contact them because I know when I contact you, you get back to me immediately. What is your 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 um, your, your best way for people to contact you? And um, and how open are you to people contacting you that, that want to know about this, about esports or video games or game design? Sure. So I generally suggest people first go to professorgrace.com just to get a sense for who I am. And some of the questions are often answered there, like, where do I get your books? Or uh, how do I understand how to do this or that? Uh, the next is that I, I generally prefer people for professional contact, start with LinkedIn or Twitter, and then we move from there. Uh, you can always email me at lgrace at miami.edu, which is my faculty email. The challenge there is that on Sundays, you might get 10 emails per hour, and it's really difficult to keep up with them. And in other days, it, you know, it could be a trickle and you just get me at the right time. Yeah. yeah and I tell people that all the time. They well, <laughs> contacted you, but yeah, but it may go to spam. You know, yes. uh, you know, that happens. And on LinkedIn, I have 50 billion followers. And so I get over 400 emails or plus a day. There's no way in yeah. the world I can go through them every day. So you just happen to might catch me. So I get people my personal email because on, on LinkedIn, they're going to, it's going to be hard to catch me on there. Yep. Um, and but I, I really, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, the pro tip is to actually one of the things that blows my mind is how infrequently people in LinkedIn give you a sense for why they're contacting you. So those first couple of lines really matter. And when they say things like, hi, I was just uh, like, whatever. So no, no, get right to the point because I may not click show more to learn what you really want to know. Right. <laughs> I tell people, um, and this is a, a not only is a pet peeve of mine, but what I do is I try to educate people when I talk to them the best way to keep in contact with me. I always tell young people and even people that are um, seasoned or just uh, people that are working in industry. When you meet people, they give you their business card, ask them, what is the best way to keep in touch with you? Because if you don't ask them that and you email them and they're not good emailers and you're going to get upset. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe their best, best way to keep in contact is their cell phone, their bat line, who knows, but right. ask that person because uh, if you don't ask them, you're not going to know. And I always tell people, salutations matter. When you're emailing someone, it should be, I tell people to make it personal. I say, dear, dear, dear Professor Lindsay, um, uh, good afternoon, good evening, good morning. My name is Dr. Mark Williams. I had the wonderful opportunity hearing you speak today on the podcast, and I love to learn more about what you do. Is there an opportunity for us to speak in the next uh, 10 to 15 days? Give the person uh, yeah. you know, some latitude, some give them some time. Uh, I love to talk to you soon. I look forward to speaking to you soon. Sincerely and be done. Salutations matter. Be quick and to the point. Don't tell me your life story. Just make it yep. as quick and to the point. Um, is, is that how it is for you as well? Would you like that uh, that way to be communicated to? Absolutely. I, my time is precious. I'm always trying to do too many things in too little time. So efficient, efficient communication in any way is always appreciated. Absolutely. So uh, is there anything you want to share with the audience that you're doing, any projects that you have that you think that, that would be beneficial to them? Um, because, again, there's so much that you do. Uh, and I know there's a lot that you do that I don't even know. Uh, but um, I'm curious to know if there are things that you would like to share with us that that that, that you're proud of working on right now or are things that you're looking forward to doing? 
Sure. So there's a couple of them. So obviously, one of my pride and joys right now is this forthcoming book on Black game makers. I really want people to submit content because I think it's really important to get a really wide view, a 360 degree view as well, a comprehensive view of the kind of work that's happening there. I'm also on an advisory board. The University of Miami is creating an initiative they're calling Global Black Studies, Mm -hmm. where we're trying to bring together a, again, 360 degree view of the African diaspora worldwide. Uh, So it combines the university's connections in the Caribbean to uh, the local African-American community, as well as the rest of the nation. And so I'm really proud to be doing that initiative. It's, it's headed, essentially, it's, it's championed rather by our president. And we've got people from all the different departments uh, within the institution. I think that's another point of pride in my current projects. I have a lot of others. I'm always making some version of an indie game. Uh, I did some work with Miami Herald last year. I'll continue to do that kind of work going forward. I think one of the best ways to find out sort of what are the things I'm doing now is sometimes just to go check my website. I tend to share all my social links are there. So I tend to share like hints of that work on social media as well as, um, you know, I'll I'll drop it into some other spaces. So I think that's probably the best way to to know what's going on. That's interesting. One one thing I want to say is, is refreshing is that uh, you take great pride um, in the culture of being a black male and a black man uh, and also the black community. How important is it for black people uh, as far as uh, women, uh, black men uh, to, to give back and to educate uh, about not only this industry, but other industries, because a lot of times when um, many of us are successful, we tend to forget, uh, you know, where we came from and our pathway. How important is it for people of color uh, to provide pathways and provide knowledge that they've learned to other up and coming black men and women that are that are trying to occupy those spaces? I think it's essential as a person of color to make sure that we are offering a sense of what's on the other side, uh, a sense as to a path and providing that kind of mentoring. The challenge is, of course, that as you know, often one of the only in your space, it's very easy to become burdened with the mentorship and not be afforded the time to do the work you came there to do in the first place. Mm. This is particularly common within academia. So you can see time and time again, there are reports about females who are doing far too much mentoring or service work who aren't, they're, they're just overburdened with it. And likewise for people of color, because you're the only one and Myself, for example, I'm serving on five faculty committees this semester, Mm. and uh, that's exceeding a kind of average load, but they're all things that I think need to happen. Two of them are related to diversity and equity and inclusion. Uh, I also think that as an alumnus of a number of these programs, what we should be doing is applying pressure to the industry to foster more growth and development in a structural way. So I'm an alumnus of the Leadership Education and Development Program, which is a summer program designed around um, minorities and increasing their access to understanding the jobs and opportunities in business. I'm an alumnus of the Better Chance Organization, which Oprah Winfrey substantially funded in the 80s and 90s, that really was about giving opportunities to minorities to get into better secondary education, to get into better high schools, whether it was private high schools or public programs that happen to be in great communities. I'm also an alumnus of the PhD program, which is explicitly oh, yes. about trying, yeah, about trying to get people in business, the PhD yes. project. Better. 
and so there are all of these structures that I think uh, we need to actually substantiate in order to make this happen, because the one-on-one mentorship is not a scalable model. If you need to increase the 2% participation in the games industry by African-Americans to 6% to get even near half of the number of consumers, percentage of consumers, you need something more than myself and Gordon Bellamy and a couple of the other sort of highly visible African-Americans to say, oh, sure, I will go ahead and mentor the four to 500 people who are interested in doing what I do. We need structure. Wow. (laughs) Do you, do you, do you see yourself and yourself and Gordon and others, uh, creating something, uh, creating a pathway or a organization that will provide that structure? I would love to commit to that that kind of uh, resource. I've tried to do these things as part of the organizations I've I've added my leadership to. So being on the the executive board for the Global Game Jam, we've moved some initiatives forward and actually globally done some really fascinating things in seeding games education in places where they weren't making games five years ago. Uh, I've also worked with Games for Change for these kinds of efforts. There are a bunch of organizations that are doing it. I personally don't know of one organization that is wholly focused on this one effort, but there are a lot of offshoots. In fact, I just shared with two students, um, or rather with uh, two student listservs, uh, a variety of scholarships that have been produced largely in cooperation with both the IGDA, the International Game Developers Association, and the ESA that are aimed at improving diversification or diversity within games. And these include for the IGDA project, they're looking at $200,000 worth of grants and funding for scholarships and game projects. So there are those efforts. Uh, I don't know that I'm the person to lead another organization that starts that, but I think if someone gave me the resources and told me you have to teach one less class or you had some space, I'd certainly consider it. <laughs> well, you know, you have uh, a new person here uh, who's uh, yeah. been connected to the video game industry for 21 years, but now in academia, just a, a few years. But um, I'm here for support. Is also Keisha Walker, who is the head of the the um, chairwoman and CEO of, of Black Collegiate Gaming Association, where she works with black colleges and black gamers the gaming um, executives on putting together uh, creating pathways for black students around the country. Uh, But I'm definitely willing to do that because um, I know that there's a need for it. And again, I'm very encouraged. Uh, You and I had not spoken about this, but as we continue to talk, I'm very encouraged by that. And it's important that our our white counterparts, our aging counterparts, our Hispanic counterparts uh, listen to this conversation because um, again, uh, in order for you, you to diversify or get diversity um, on your on your team or in your organization, you need to talk to the people that are, at, are that are leaders in the space in the academic side, but also people that are in the um, the publishing side and, and the other parts of it that are of color and listening to some of the needs and also some of the burdens that we have uh, that that our white counterparts don't have. Um, and, and so we can all create um, some equity here uh, where everybody wins. Um, and again, we definitely got to have this conversation, another conversation. And uh, again, it was, a, it was a pleasure and a thrill to talk to you today. I'm glad I was, I'm able to provide, um, you know, this kind of resource for our audience uh, to, to know of or hear of a, of a Lindsay Grace, uh, who's the night chair of interactive media uh, at the University of Miami. Uh, thank you so much for your knowledge, for your wisdom. And just for your consciousness um, and really paying attention to the needs of people of color in this space, but also being vigilant about making sure you're educating all uh, everyone uh, uh, on the planet. That's that's the most important thing. But it's important to also have representation uh, that people can identify with people that look like them as well. 
Um, so again, thank you again for coming out to Dr. Mark's Masterclass Podcast. Uh, again, shout out to Innovation Media Enterprises for all that you do. Aaron and Sia, AJ, thank you again for making us sound so great. Jacob, always so much love for you for, for giving me this wonderful platform. And remember, friends, I say this all the time, uh, that there's three things you, that you can control, okay? You cannot control anybody but yourself. And the three things are what you think, what you do, and what you say. Remember that you can control three things, what you think, what you do, what you say, Thank you again for another wonderful episode of Dr. Mark's Masterclass Podcast. We will see you soon with another fresh episode. See you soon, my friends. Peace. Thanks for listening to Dr. Mark's Masterclass. I pray you enjoyed yourself today. I had a good time. I don't know about you, but this podcast is part of the Esports Futurewide Podcast Network and is produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and let us know how we're doing by leaving a comment or a review. Class dismissed.